For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening, everyone. My name's Jen, and I'm the program manager here at M Pavilion. Um, I want to welcome you this evening to our M Talk, Design Solutions, Four Decades of Sustainability, Regeneration, and the Challenge to Do More, presented by Grimshaw Architects. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians on the land of which we meet. The Yalakut Willem are part of the Boonwurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. Tonight we're delighted to welcome Dr. Paul Toyne, Sustainability Practice Leader at Grimshaw Architects. His work focuses on developing and continually improving the practice sustainable design approach. Paul holds many advisory roles, including London Sustainable Development Commissioner, as appointed by the Mayor of London in 2010, and as the Chair of the Constructing Excellence Sustainability Group. I'll now hand over to Paul to begin. Thank you very much, Jen. Thanks for the introduction. Um, I would also like to give my acknowledgement uh, of country. Um, I acknowledge the Yorjakot William as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today. Uh, I pay my respects to the land, their ancestors, and the elders past, present, and to the future. Um, furthermore, on, on behalf of Grimshaw, I'd just like to say thank you very much uh, for, for coming and attending tonight. Um, in terms of, of the format uh, for this evening, um, I'm very briefly going to describe who I am, um, what Grimshaw does, and to provide, provide a bit of context for, for the discussion and, and the, the, um, the content um, around sustainability. Um, and what I'm hoping to do is to explore some of the thinking uh, and design considerations that we practice here at Grimshaw. And then I'm, I'm going to, to end with a very clear statement about Grimshaw and our commitment around sustainability. And then hopefully we'll have the chance for, for questions. Uh, apologies, I can't move around too much because I need to be near the mic. Um, but anyhow, um, so... So I guess it's, it's important to, uh, for you to understand that um, I'm not an architect and I'm, I'm not a, a designer, I'm not an engineer. Um, I actually trained as, as an ecologist um, and ecology is, is, is the study of species interaction with the environment uh, and in a way it's a holistic view. So moving into architecture and understanding man's interaction with place and quality is a very natural link. Um, but I started looking at the habitat requirements of reintroduced birds of prey in Britain, uh, like the northern goshawk and red kite, um, and that was for my PhD. Whilst I, I was studying, I uh, was very fortunate, uh, oh, I guess I made my own luck really, um, but I led a series of scientific expeditions uh, to southern Ecuador, where I studied the plight of uh, really seriously threatened neotropical parrots. Uh, and here's an example. Um, that red circle is, is a nest of a red-faced parrot. The picture next to it is, you know, as a biologist, when you find the first ever nest of a species known to man, you know, in terms of recording it, you've got to go and investigate. And actually, we climbed, I climbed that tree a few times, um, and we, we documented the nesting chronology of that species. So we did a lot of um, scientific publication. Um, we made a couple of films. We also collected botanical specimens. We found new species um, in, in Ecuador, or including um, 
distributional ranges. I've got lots of stories to tell you about those experiences. Um, but we also discovered new species of, of uh, butterfly. I'm fortunate enough to have a butterfly named after me. Uh, but there's a serious point, actually. Um, there was gold mining happening in the region, and so we took a master's student to look at the uh, environmental impacts of gold mining on the artisanal, areas, artisanal miners, a public health issue. Uh, we made a film, we launched a campaign, and we removed an Anglo-Australian mining company from working illegally in a national park. So things have moved on somewhat, I think, since then. I moved on, um, and with that work, I started in conservation, working for WWF, where I led a number of campaigns. And I'm delighted that actually a friend of mine's here tonight from those days. Um, and we then set out to change policy, um, create new um, areas for protected, uh, protected areas for species, etc., uh, and help develop something called the Forest Stewardship Council, which for those of you who work in the built environment and look at speci specifying timber, you'll know that that was quite an important uh, change understanding uh, where timber comes from. I then had a career in being an entrepreneur because there was a whole movement of corporate social responsibility and I thought maybe I could be a change agent working within business as a consultant. Uh, and that led me really to, you know, the start of a journey to where I am today. And I was just considering how urbanisation, how human consumption um, and the population growth were going to have a real impact on the planet, and I thought that if I was going to make the biggest difference, where could I make it? Would it be at the front line trying to protect uh, a species or back into a protected area, or would it be trying to influence and change public policy and business within the built environment? So I took on, um, I took on a number of roles. I was the uh, UK's first sustainability director for Lendlease, so I've got a kind of like contracting background. I then went on to a global uh, position with WSP, the Design Engineering Consultancy. Um, and latterly, I was uh, a similar role working in infrastructure as well with Balfour Beatty. Anyhow, um, you know, fast forward till today, um, and I'm now the practice leader uh, for sustainability at Grimshaw. Um, and I joined Grimshaw eight months ago, uh, and I, I joined it for a very specific purpose. And that was to lead the practice on sustainable and regenerative design. Um, it was a, a recognition that architecture and design has so much to offer. And actually, we can design out a lot of the bad outcomes that we see just through good design. And that was actually a statement I made well over 15 years ago when I was working for Lendlease. So my passion and interest really is, is, is to recognize that we need to do so much more we need to learn so much more, and we need to collaborate more. But actually, we need a diverse group of people together to start to think about designing the solutions for the future, because they don't just come from one profession. We need that integrated approach. So th this presentation really is about exploring the how, you know, not the why, not anymore. We know the why, not the what, but it is the how. And what I've chosen to do is, is select some projects that I've seen from my understanding of Grimshaw that I believe offer some, some solutions. They're not always perfect, but they offer some train of thought that are worth exploring. Um, so I've selected a, a mixture of old and new projects, so we're going to look back a bit in time, um, as well as international projects, not just Australian projects. So hopefully with that in mind, oh, I forgot to show you the photos of me outside a building. Here we go. There we go. You can see I've rehearsed this. 
But it is worth actually just talking about Grimshaw for one moment. So this is a, a photograph of Sir Nicholas Grimshaw, the founder of Grimshaw, uh, that was set up in, in 1980. Um, and I just want to be, remind you of a quote, which I think is quite telling. He said this 20 years ago. And to quote Sir Nick, he said, My great hope is that in, in the opening decades of this new century, architects will lose their obsession with style and image and will design buildings which actually express the forces that act on them. They will concentrate on structures where spatial arrangements are almost infinite and whose skins truly reflect the sustainable ideals we should all be striving for, which respond to sunlight, shade, the need for climate protection and insulation, and which can even respond to changes in temperature and wind, yet remain beautiful. In my view, architects no longer have a choice but to embrace these ideals. So fast forward 20 years on, what I'm going to be presenting is how though that, that idea, that philosophy, can be now has continued to be seen uh, throughout the work that we do here in Grimshaw. So um, forgive me if all of you know who Grimshaw are, um, but we do operate globally, and you can see from the slide um, where our operations are. Uh, and then if you think about more specifically what we do in Australia, I guess we can look at you know, very specific sectors. And what I've highlighted here is some of the projects. Um, so hopefully if, you, if, you, if you're part of the community that, that uses these railway stations, you'll be saying, oh, I didn't know Grimshaw designed that. And then when we go to aviation, uh, and have a look at the airports that we're, we're working on, whether that's master planning or designing piers and terminals. So that takes on board some work that we do in, in New Zealand as well. And in the workplace in terms of commercial, commercial space and offices. And then moving on to retail and exhibitions, here's some of our projects, uh, including a couple run out of, uh, out of the Melbourne office in, in Bahrain. Some of these projects I will be uh, going back to. But if, then if we look at the higher education sector with science and learning, uh, and I know there's some, some friends of ours who are in the audience today who, who've worked on some of these projects and, and others that I've shown. Um, so hopefully I can do you justice in terms of presenting them. And then in, into, into, into infrastructure, so there's some, some bridges and highways. So... Before I go into these you know, projects and, and you know, design philosophies, I think it's really important just to, to recognize that I think we really are at a crossroads. I mean, when I accepted this speaking opportunity, it was, I can't remember, September, maybe October, and I think the world's changed. Australia is certainly changing. Um, I won't go into, in, in, into my thoughts on where the crossroads are and how, how we need to understand what prosperity really means for us. But I think it is important to recognize that we've only been on this planet a really short space of time. And it's amazing the impact that we have. Uh, and with our growing population um, and uh, ever-consuming habits, um, the implications are already there, the tipping points. Uh, and I'm sure some of you attended the National Climate Emergency uh, Summit um, at the weekend. Uh, the good news is this is out there. Everyone's talking about it. The question is, you know, how are we going to respond to it and what's our role? And I, I don't really want to spend too much on this because I, I think you probably know enough about it. But, you know, you have to take an evidence-based approach to this. Uh, we know 
And I think it's important to recognize that architects and designers, we know this. We know that we need to be considering it. It's, it's freely available. You know, we, we, know, we know there's a, um, you know, international data uh, that reveals how, how your oceans are warming, how your atmospheric temperature is, is increasing, leading to increased frequency of, of heat stresses or indeed the likelihood of fires. And we know that you know, we've, we're living in, in, a, in a place which has a huge amount of water stress and biodiversity loss. We also recognize that we've got to help with this transition away from fossil fuels, coal, gas, oil. They're your primary sources, and yet they're still dominant in your energy supply. Furthermore, we know energy consumption is actually increasing per capita. So there's a whole issue around the challenges to reduce demand and improve energy efficiency and plan for that energy transition to renewables consistent with what is required to restrict global atmospheric temperature to at least 1.5 degrees, at the very worst, 2 degrees. And bear in mind, and this is something that's quite often forgotten, we're already around 1.1. So it's not that we're starting at zero and we've got 1.5. So there are some challenges. And so... Let me just be really clear um, what the purpose of this lecture is today. It really is to, is to fundamentally question the, the current state of our approach to architecture and design and ask ourselves if we are truly equipped to maintain prosperity for our citizens in harmony with a functioning living planet Earth. And to explore this, um, I'll explain the, this design philosophy we at Grimshaw have look at some of these key principles and over time how our approach has evolved right up today and how we're seeing the future. So I, I think there's really three key uh, areas to explore. Um, uh, and, and what I want to do is, is deal with one right now, which is the need to mitigate. In other words, stop emitting greenhouse gases. Uh, and clearly, I'm not giving this lecture on behalf of, of the energy transition, but actually how buildings play a critical part in their consumption of energy, so that we need to be designing for buildings that will help with that transition, help with the, with the reduction in demand um, for, for greenhouse um, gas, greenhouse, uh, sorry, fossil fuel-generated electricity. So we need to be part of that pursuit of a net-zero carbon um, uh, pathway, reducing energy demands and improving energy efficiency. We'll also need to adapt, and that will be my third, second theme. We need to adapt to the already the impacts of climate change that we have, um, and I'll argue that we'll need to adapt our buildings even more, and indeed repurpose them, rather than build new or expand new areas when refurbishment is an option. And finally, the third theme I want to explore is the need for us to regenerate. This is where our built environment doesn't just take, but actually creates something positive and gives back. And here we don't know all the answers, and, but let's explore them, and let's, let's work out how we can get to that state. So let's first look at zero. And so for this, I'm just going to go back in time a little bit. So um, Grimshaw were commissioned to design the, the British Pavilion for the Seville Expo in 1992. Um, and guess what happened in 1992? Anybody remember? Anybody old enough? The Earth Summit. Yeah? Guess what? What happened then? All the Earth leaders, political leaders, came together to declare the need to develop sustainability, reverse deforestation, desertification, climate change, and biodiversity. 
Meanwhile, back in the real world, we were looking at the real challenge of managing the heat, the severe heat of Seville. Because Seville is called the frying pan of Spain, as it's one of the hottest cities in Europe. So what we wanted to show, and was this a temporary structure, was that how you could deal with the heat in an environmentally and affordable way. And the concept was to use the sun to cool the building. So on, on the east side was a kinetic water wall that was created elevation, a sense of space around the, the entrance. And the falling water created, created changing patterns and reflections, as well as providing passive cooling to the glazing and the ambient environment. It reduced the temperature inside the building by 8 degrees. The roof was covered with photovoltaics. Energy generated from PV was used to pump the water and pour it over the glass. The fabric sails were used to shield the enclosure from sun, and the west wall, where the sun was hottest, was formed from a deep shield of freight containers that protected against the strong afternoon sun. Simple and effective. And for that, Grimshaw won the prize of the most energy-efficient pavilion, coming first from 106 um, entrance. So let's move across. Let's move back to Australia uh, and to Southern Cross, uh, which was Southern Cross Station is the first project we designed and delivered in the Southern Hemisphere. Grimshaw were appointed to work in collaboration with the local practice, Jackson Architecture, on the reorganization and expansion of the station. And I'm sure you're all very familiar with the wonderful station, so I'm not really going to go into too much detail, other than the fact that it was completed in 2006. It's subsequently won several architectural awards. But, but for me, and the reason why I picked this project, um, it, the design focus was really on air and air movements, rather than sun and water that we saw in Seville. And, and it was really looking at the, the, the station's dune-like roof. And, and I think back then, Grimshaw, and there's a few of the designers, the actual architects actually here in the room, but I think they saw the opportunity to utilise the roof, not just for shading, but for an opportunity to, to, to take, to take the, the southerly western winds and use something called the Ventura effect, whereby the velocity of air movements uh, changes in areas where, where you've got structure. So the velocity increases. And in this case, the actual air speeds up and moves out of the roof through the openings. So what you've got is an opportunity to use that convection, if you like, to take the, the diesel fumes and the pollution from, from, the, from the railway station and take it out of, um, out, out of the atmosphere and out of the building. So the warm air rises, the diesel fumes go, the Venturi effect um, takes the air from the outside and creates a passive ventilation system rather than using mechanical... Um, uh, mechanical uh, system, which of course requires um, electricity. So, I don't know if you've, any of you have actually seen the top of, uh, no, it's not going to go, come on. Never work live with technology, animals, or young children. Oh, come on. No, okay, well, Let's move on. Oh, here we go. Patience. I've got no patience. So this is the top. So you can see where these little stars are, and that's where the, the air escapes to from beneath. But again, simple and effective solutions. So I rather like that. And I started to see a bit of a theme. So some of you might be familiar with, with, with High Points. This is the Northeast present um, precinct development, uh, High Point Shopping Centre. 
uh, which the whole aim was to introduce new space for the community um, and then you know, to, to champion some sustainability initiatives. So we were commissioned uh, in late 2009 um, by GPT to change the existing retail com convention and really radically change the perception of this, of this shopping centre. Uh, and from a kind of like a design perspective, I guess the, the, the community sought an outcome where High Point really reflected what they needed and it was connected with the local environment. It was creative um, and it, it, it uh, reflected the resilient nature or the spirit of, of Melbourne West. So in response, and here's a couple of um, photographs of it, um, the Mows features natural materials, exposed beams that celebrate the site's history as a quarry with the use of bluestone on the floors and furniture. The eco-spine roof structure was inspired by the ebb and flow of the nearby river. Again, we've got a transparent roof designed to bring natural light in and fresh air. The, and that fresh air flows throughout the mole um, before openings to a grand entrance in a public space. Um, uh, and, and importantly, and unusually for such a large retail centre, all the new mall spaces, including the fresh food mart, are naturally uh, ventilated and responsive to weather conditions. So I don't know if you can... Um, you can see, I think it's on the next slide, where we've got, we've got, <laughs> I can't shout, we've got shutters, if you look here, and they can open and close, and so depe depending on the weather conditions, these shutters open and close, and we can get the air in, the natural ventilation, so again, it's really thinking about the forces that act upon the nature of the building, the orientation, and how you can maximise that, so you can work with it, the building works with nature, and its forces rather than against it. So, so it, and, and actually, I, I think the feedback from, um, from the community has been overwhelming. It's been fantastic. Um, the place is occupied, it's busy, it's vibrant. And really, that's what I guess good architecture should do. It should be a place where people can enjoy, it's, it's utilized, um, it has a strong connection with the surrounding environment and community. So, I really like that project. Now, let's go to the current day. So we're going to go to America, we're going to go to the desert, uh, we're going to have a look at one of our American projects. And this is the Interdisciplinary Science and Technology Building 7, to give it its fancy title. And it serves as a new gateway to the main Arizona State University campus in Tempe. So it's a research facility. Um, I'm not going to go through all the details, but it is there also to teach and focus on sustainability, food and energy. There, there's, a, there's a lot to it. Um, however, why, why I selected this project? It's one of a few that we've got coming through our pipeline that truly exhibit net zero carbon in terms of its uh, function and how it's been designed. So we're attempting to achieve the International Living Futures Zero Carbon uh, Certification. Um, and we're following uh, this certification standard and it's got some minimum requirements. So um, if you can read that up on there on the green, they're the minimum requirements. And in blue, there are, you can see our current requirements. So we're looking at green. So minimum is 25% reduction of energy use intensity from an equivalent building. And we're now currently tracking at 40%. Uh, the operational energy, renewable, uh, operational energy um, has to be either 100% um, renewable on-site or off-site. That's it. Um, and to do that, we've, the university has actually got an off-site um, investment in a solar park. So that's a little bit like what Barang, uh, what uh, Lenley said in, in Barangaroo, for example, in, in Sydney. 
Um, embodied carbon, which is really an important critical issue that's rising up the agenda to really understand uh, that it's, so there's a lot of embodied carbon in construction materials like steel and, and, and concrete. So the minimum uh, requirement is a 10% reduction in embodied carbon compared to the equivalent building. And our current design is, is tracking at a 20% or greater reduction in embodied carbon. So uh, all of that in the middle of the desert. So what I really want to do is just give you a couple of examples of, of how we're delivering to that kind of standard. Um, and I think it's, um, it's, it's probably important to recognize that the project is located in the American Southwest in the uh, Sorana Desert. And the challenges to meeting a net zero carbon equation are really quite obvious. First of all, the typical baseline buildings uh, have really high energy use intensity, given the mechanical cooling required to achieve thermal comfort. Um, and, and at the moment, the actual university um, ca uh, campus energy grid is only about 20% renewable at peak loads. And then the other issue is that the typical buildings have a really high embodied carbon, given most of those buildings are made from concrete superstructures. So, uh, again, how do we start to understand the orientation of, um, of the building and how can we maximise that? So when we start to look at operational carbon, energy use intensity, reduction strategies, the team optimised building massive for, for passive solar and cooling design opportunities. So the diagram on the left shows how the courtyard was carved for daylight and passive solar, which is really important for winter uh, and the mornings, so when it's really cold, so we want to get as so much sun there and warmth. The diagram on, on the right shows how the building's wings were, were, were carved on the east and west to embrace the summer prevailing breezes and carved at the lower levels to engage evaporative cooling at a historic canal which runs uh, through the site. So again, understanding how those breezes and the temperature gradients will, will vary. And, and, and we always take, and this is another theme that I see with the projects that I've been looking at, it's really understanding how nature is already responding to living in these harsh environments and what we can learn from ancient civilizations and how that can, um, how we can take that inspiration. And so when we look at that rendering of this is the courtyard, we can see some similarities in understanding the, the shading and, and, and the various aspects. And furthermore, when we look at shading, uh, and I'm sure some of you will be students of biophilia and, and understand this, but um, nature's evolved over millions and millions of years. And do you remember you know, how many minutes, if minutes, we've been on this planet you know, in terms of how we're evolving? So we took a lot of um, learnings from these cacti and, and how their shapes um, influenced um, the, 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 the shading. So, uh, so we, did, we did this study. Um, and here you can see the facade design uh, and how we understand how with this type of shading we can create uh, more passive cooling um, for the building, particularly at, at times when uh, um, the temperature is really hot and the sun's strong. So, so this is what it kind of like looks like, and, and you'll notice as I move through the different orientations of the building that the that actual design of that facade changes. If you're interested, the actual facade is, is, um, is made from glass-fibred reinforced um, concrete, uh, which actually helps a lot. Um, uh, but even more critical in, in terms of managing the energy load reduction was maintaining a, a lower, optimizing the window-to-wall ratio 
So <laughs> guess what? Not a lot of glazing. Uh, and yet it seems to be a fashion for um, having uh, a lot of glazing in places where really where it's uh, inappropriate. Um, so we've, we've done a lot of modeling on that to, to work out the differences, so the, the north and the east and the, um, the southwest facade. So very briefly, just moving on a bit, just in terms of that building envelope, we did explore different ways to reduce the carbon, um, the embodied carbon within that. Um, and uh, so, so, our, so the design team studied various uh, facade materials from precast concrete to metal paneling and to glass fiber reinforced carbon. And, and reductions in the embodied carbon was, was only one of the many targets factored into the design making matrix. So there's other things we have to consider, as, as you well know. Weight is, is a key one, and indeed also is cost. But what we've managed to do is take advantage of, of, um, of taking this evidence-based approach. We're being able to demonstrate, this is a really important point about some of the work that we do. There is inconsistency in how we report a lot of this data. And as architects, and particularly Grimshaw, we need to be more consistent. That's a, a lessons learned. But on some of these projects, the data is extremely good, and we can actually evidence how we're moving in the right direction in terms of these reductions. As I always say to the architects and designers, prove to me you know what you've done. It's actually going to deliver the outcome that you want. And that's really, really important. So we've achieved already um, a carbon saving over 50% against the baseline. And up, you know, it wasn't just in the facade design. There are other savings in, in, in terms of concrete void slabs and replacing um, the cement with fly ash. So carrying on with that story of, of uh, net zero, uh, and I'm sure some of you might well have been involved in this particular project. Uh, so this is here in Victoria. Uh, Grimshaw were commissioned to design the Woodside Building for Technology and Design at Monash University Clayton Campus. Um, Again, uh, I mean, there's quite a lot to discuss around, you know, uh, what the facility does. But it, it's meant really to, to um, provide a place for learning. And I think we, we need to recognise how, how we can design these buildings to maximise that opportunity. Uh, whether it's interactive learning, laboratory spaces for students and researchers to embrace innovation, design and cutting-edge technology for the development of solutions in sustainable energy technology. It's a five-story building, it's, it's big. It's got lots of different spaces. Um, the lower three levels accommodate 30 different modular learning spaces of varying dimensions. So it's a complicated building. But, and here's the good news, or I should say however, the completed building will be one of the most energy efficient and innovative teaching buildings of its type using solar as one of its energy sources. It's been designed with uh, passive house metrics to create an ultra-low energy building with all electric services. So for those of you who haven't studied or, or know what passive house means, it, it means you take a fabric-first approach and you think about the building envelope, you think about how you can make that as airtight as possible, and how you can then, with the orientation, really understand the solar gains and the cooling. It's a very natural system. It's, it's, it's come from, from nor Northern Europe. So we look at, we look at uh, being airtight, we're looking at balances that are needed for that airtightness, looking at insulation and shading for solar gain, um, with sunlight, daylight, view prominence and ground level interactivity, all important. So it incorporates um, a distribution services of the course and minimise reliance on energy to condition and distribute the air. So there's a, there's a, there's a cut through um, a section. 
Um, and what I want to do is kind of like just dwell on some of those key learnings. And this is, you know, the data is not yet available. It hasn't gone into it. It's just um, we'll be going through it. It's commissioning. Um, but some of the learnings that we've got for de designing for sustainability on large buildings, um, we, we can already share with you. And particularly with contemporary learning facilities, they need large volumes. We need to be ad with adaptive space for varying modes of teaching. And the principal large span adaptive spaces are generally sur surrounded by supporting technical spaces and non-informal collaboration. So as a consequence, there's a need for a large building um, footprint. Um, and then from a sustainability position, you need large volumes with a minimized facade area. So you provide optimum opt opportunity for energy reduction from external climate impacts. And then for amenity, it's really important to understand that people do like a view, and aren't we lucky tonight? You know, you, people do get stimulation. You look up, you see, get a sense of space, you look down, you talk. These things are actually really important. So one of the outcomes of, these, of this design is to, is, is to create and foster good research. And then I guess from a, from, from a master planning perspective within a campus environment, there is a bit of a challenge here because these large volumetric buildings that suit contemporary styles of teaching means that master plans must allow buildings to be designed from the inside-out perspective and then placed within an adaptive master plan framework that seeks to understand that, that relationship between those uses and, and programs that occupy the interface between building and the public domain. We need the public domain to be active. We need people to come in and out. These are community facilities, after all. And a better understanding of that relationship, that equilibrium, is really important. So... There, there, there were a, uh, a couple of, of um, project examples around zero and a pursuit of net zero. Um, what I want to do now is just briefly give you a, a, a couple of project examples that describe another important design consideration. And that really is the need to reuse existing buildings and make better use of them rather than demolish them and start again. And it's a principle that we've been exploring um, despite in some parts of the world being highly unfashionable. Um, and it, actually, it's really a really crucial design consideration to, uh, to understand when you consider all the new building and infrastructure that we will need just to meet the requirements of the new populations and the emerging cities that we'll have. So, I mean, to put it into context, by the middle of the 21st century, the urban population will have almost doubled, duplicating our entire current infrastructure. Just imagine the impacts of that. So, we've got to be far more uh, adaptive, um, and here's a photograph of a building taken in the summer of last summer, or my last summer, that's in English summer, the summer of 2019. It's the School of Art and Design for Bath Spa University. But it didn't start out that way. The existing award-winning building designed by Farrell and Grimshaw Partnership was completed in 1977 as Herman Miller's primary furniture factory in the UK. And indeed, it remained a factory until 2015, by which time it was a grade two listed building. Bath Spa purchased the building in 2016 in order to relocate the School of Art and Design and look to consolidate the facility, the, uh, their, their faculty, sorry, then spread over several um, sites and buildings. So here's a photograph of, uh, of a young Nicholas Grimshaw. He's actually examining the, uh, the cladding that goes on the outside of the building. I'm not too sure about the stringent health and safety rules that are going on there, nor indeed am I too sure about the fashion, but there you go. It's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? So this is back in the 70s. 
But even then, um, you know, Grimshaw's philosophy was modular. It was designing for reuse and repurpose. Um, and um, so, you know, fast forward to today, when we actually took those panels off, we could, I think there was about five or six that had to be replaced. We remanufactured and put them back on. And that building um, has got, you know, another 20, 30 years of life left in it. So um, it's a testament, um, first of all, to the quality of the workmanship, but also to the design. So that idea of repurposing is really important, allowing the ongoing adaptability of the building. And it's interesting, uh, actually, uh, in 1978, uh, Nicholas Grimshaw said, and I found this quote, one should envisage even the possibility of turning the whole building over to offices with courtyards introduced in the centre and the storage and warehouse facilities moved elsewhere. So even then he was thinking, well, there might be another use. Furniture, factories, they come and go. So um, you should be really careful of, of, uh, of what you say, I guess. Um, but it did happen. Um, and so this kit of parts approach has proved very successful in enabling the building to be repurposed. So that's what it looks like now with the, within the university. So let's talk big now. Let's talk infrastructure and let's talk about how we need to reuse or adapt and repurpose some of our existing infrastructure. And for some, yeah, there's good, good reason for the need for doing that because it's absolute chaos if you, you know, ask a, you know, you, you stop uh, the services at a railway station. But here is London Bridge Station. Um, it's nestled between the Shard and where I often go, the uh, City Hall where the Mayor of London is, and, and you can see with the river, so it's on the left-hand side. Um, this gives you some idea of the scale of it. Um, and actually, uh, London Bridge Station is the linchpin of, of the Thameslink uh, programme back in Britain. And you can see the kind of lines it, it, um, it services with 46 million passengers traveling annually. Uh, the issue here is in a, in a crowded populated area, there was a need to create more through trains. So to go from Brighton all the way to Peterborough and not just stop at London Bridge. So the, the actual uh, brief was very simple. It was actually to convert um, and swap over the 9-6 ratio that you see here to this, so that we could have nine tracks running through. To do all that while the train is still kept in operation, um, and to do it with, um, with, a, with a low carbon agenda, uh, and one of increasing um, importance for customer service. So the point about this, it will enable 18 of those planned 24 services to call at London Bridge, um, and it will critically renegotiate the space that will lock up 80% of this capacity on the, on the train line. So that capacity between north and south. So this is what the, the station looked like, an aerial view, um, before the, the work started. Um, and there are, there are a number of challenges. You know, the creation of one single station for the first time. Um, coherence, going back to roofs uh, and understanding how we can get a better design there. A clear, legible layout. People got confused using it. It was poorly used. People hated it. Um, it was one of the worst in, in, in London. 
um, we wanted it to be a transport hub, not just a station. So the interchange of streets, opening it up, a sense of arrival, a whole variety of different things. And of course, it has to be affordable. So that really is, is, is a kind of the, you know, the brief, um, really important. So the existing railway acted as a, as a barrier between the two communities. They couldn't get through. So you know, the need to connect them was, was really important. Um, and for us, we wanted to create a space. So this is the interior now, as you can see. Um, and again, this is all, that's passively called, um, uses natural daylight. Uh, people move around, they're not necessarily stationary. So there isn't a need to, to have heating and cooling at any particular times. So this was, the, this was what we did. So we took the top off. We reused, uh, so we, we cleared a thoroughway, so we connected the, the links to the communities. We opened up the vaults and turned that into a retail area, so we were reusing that space, creating an opportunity for retail, but also for the community to use that space at the weekends and, or to go there for convenience. We created a new street-level concourse, so we got a lot more freedom and movement, access, opened it up, created it, sense of light here are the vaults here's the shopping center or not shopping center but the retail area sorry lined with shops and again using really clever use of the lights how we can reflect it in making certain that we can keep that space as, as the, particularly the, the main thoroughfare in the concourse so we wouldn't have such a, a load requirement in terms of, of, of lighting and we get to create um, a, a space like that. So we've got that sense of light and use. And already the responses from the community and the, the consumers is, has been, been fantastic. So a sense of civic pride. It's safe. It's light. It's vibrant. Um, it's been sustainable. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And it's been a catalyst for urban renewal um, and appropriate community and economic growth. So that's when, when you get it right. Uh, in, in, in terms of sustainability, uh, we've got an annual, there's a, a lot of things. Getting more people onto the trains is really important. So we've got an increase in passenger numbers. We've got an annual saving of 24 million uh, kilograms of CO2 equivalent. 98% uh, of the construction waste was recycled or reused on site. We've got uh, 23 tonnes of carbon being saved through low energy LED lighting. We've got 180 geothermal piles being used to provide renewable energy. Uh, that's making a saving of 126 tonnes of CO2 every year, which is equivalent to the carbon used to heat 84 UK homes. And cycling numbers have increased. We've actually um, allowed for 700 bike parking spaces. So this is all, you know, again, this understanding about how you can repurpose something, make it great again, make it viable, give it function, give it something that people want to use, and they will come. So here's moving on to something a little bit more futuristic, so this is the Dubai Expo 2020, um, and Grimshaw have been uh, commissioned to design the permanent uh, sustainability pavilion, um, which I'm going to move away from the mic. Is that area there? <laughs> so um, this is really an opportunity. You know, all these expos, it's a real opportunity for Dubai to 
demonstrate some leadership, particularly on sustainability, showcasing new technologies of uh, adapting to the natural environment and climate whilst promoting long-term solutions for society. So what I'm about to show to you is really explorative um, uh, and, and it's a sense of exploring technology and science. So, and what can we learn from it and how could you commercialise it? So we've developed a, a design and programme for the pavilion that we do believe is inventive and pointed in its mission and above all tries to be inspiring. It's a first-of-its-kind demonstration building that's capable of generating its own energy and water. So this is about net zero uh, energy and net zero water. So whilst we've largely become acclimatised to the idea that we need solar or renewable energy, um, the whole idea about how you can capture and utilise water hasn't really been explored. So we wanted to use this as a laboratory, if you like, to try and test it. Um, and certainly at this scale, it's never been done before. So the pavilion, in a sense, is a, is a, is a, is a, a unique functioning laboratory for us. So it, it opens in, in, in 2020. Um, and if you look at it, the top is completely... Um, uh, the canopy is uh, photovoltaics. And surrounding it, you can see what you... I guess I, I look at them and I, I think of them as flowers, but they're actually um, e-trees. They're energy-generating trees because they've got um, their own canopy, which is photovoltaic. But it also serves not just um, in a, an opportunity to explore these ideas, but it has a physical purpose. So it's, got a, it's a core building, about 8,000 square metres of exhibition space. It's got an auditorium, it's got a courtyard. There's also a reservoir, a central well, which actually collects water. So the building's are not, not just a showcase for technology, but it's also a building that needs to function. It's currently a, uh, under construction, and as I say, it opens in October. So that's a, a rendering of the inside. Uh, it gives you a, a sense of space. And it, you know, when I went, walked around it a couple of weeks ago, it is huge. So what are some of the design uh, considerations that you have when you're trying to get to net zero, particularly around uh, energy? Um, it, it's really an understanding that you know, orientation and maybe going into the earth um, will actually will help. So we've... We've, we've looked at um, you know, partially going below ground to take advantage of thermal mass. Um, the pavilion structure is, is generally cooler than the ambient temperature during the occupied periods. So that creation of a sunken exhibition space makes use of that thermal comfort. Um, and then we go into a situation where you, you start to think about the orientation of, of the canopy, of the roof, how it's directed towards the sun, what angle it needs to be. And what's also really interesting is, is, again, that use of natural air. There is a current, you know, even in the middle of the desert, there is airflow, and particularly when you go up a little bit, and how you can use that as a funnel. So we've got water that comes in on the canopy coming down into a central well. We've also got air currents coming in and cooling people. We've got the, the PV also gener generating electricity. So all these things, again, you, there, there is a story here, isn't there, particularly with the orientation, uh, how we're using winds to create natural ventilation. And again, it's in, in many ways, it's all inspired by nature as well. Uh, when we look at these uh, local trees uh, and we look at our um, energy tree. So these energy trees are quite interesting. Um, so they, they generate power. Uh, they provide shading and seating areas. And what they actually do is they rotate and they follow the sun. And by doing so, they actually maximize an extra 20% of energy from the sun. They're also... Um, have PV on the bottom, so the reflection 
of the light and energy coming up hits the PV, so it's top and bottom. So we're trying to get as maximum efficiency from it. So whether we can commercialize and we can look to using this, they've got a, a carbon um, design, is another matter. But we've got um, about 4,000 uh, square meters of PV on the E-tree, and then on the canopy of the main building, we've got 8,000 meters. But what, what's also really interesting is that this um, building, throughout its use, um, its main aim is to take no municipal potable water during all modes of operation. So it's got to be totally water self-sufficient. So this is all about closed-loop thinking. So everything you do, the water never leaves the site. And how can we then actually capture moisture and rainfall that comes onto the site? Um, so you know, I, I'm not going to describe this diagram too much, but it shows a, um, a hierarchy of thought around consumption, going down to reduce demand, and then all the things that you can do to, to get that circularity of, of approach. And it's really understanding how you can balance that, that, that equation around water. So it's dependent on, on a lot of issues. We've got groundwater desalination, black water reuse, um, grey water reuse. We've even got condensate reuse, so from the chillers. Um, and we've also designed a water tree. We've only got one of these, um, but very briefly... Uh, in the morning, I mean, if you've ever been to the desert, or even here, you, know, you get dew, don't you? So we'll get dew forming on, on, on these conicals. Um, and if we use the right kind of paint, hydrophobic uh, paint, the water can run down. And we've actually got insulation underneath the, uh, underneath the funnel to help accelerate that. So we're looking to capture dew, harvest it. It is an experiment. We don't know how much we're going to capture. We've done a few tests, but no one's ever done this before. How viable it will be is another matter. But again, just really understanding opportunities. And it does rain there, so they will also capture water. And again, that water drains out into that water system. So again, we're exploring the, barrier, the, the opportunities. It's also an opportunity to, to put wildlife and biodiversity back into the area with native planting schemes. And it's an opportunity, because it is a permanent structure with the planting schemes, for people to come and have a better understanding of the ecology of, of, of the desert, so that learning experiment. So if you have an opportunity, I would really recommend it. It's really a wow factor. Um, so let's go on to the last, last um, part of my talk. And this is, I'm really passionate about this because, you know, regardless of mitigating against the impacts you know, of reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions, we've got existing climate change happening. And even if we can't like, adapt to it, and we could probably solve the energy problem, we need to restore all the other elements that we've created chaos in. So, you know, how do we reverse the deserts encroaching? How do we restore your coral reefs, for example? There's a whole load of issues. So, to me, this is really where the future needs to be. Um, and I'll be honest, we, we don't have all the answers. We don't have, <laughs> not all, we, we're struggling with, with a lot of this. But we should be focusing on, on this agenda. It is important to us. And it should be important to you too, I but let's go back again in history, because it is a bit of a, my talk is a bit of reflection. This is the Eden Project uh, back in the UK. Um, so it's a disused uh, tin um, quarry, tin mine. Um, and the idea then is, I mean, you could restore it for ecological use. But when you've got um, uh, you know, uh, local communities that, that, that need opportunities, how can you restore it to something like today, which attracts 2 million people as a visitor centre? It's a learning opportunity. Um, and it just shows over the course of you know, less than 20 years how 
you know, wildlife can bounce back, but also how we can create, if we get it right, how we can take away what I would like to call now the scars of, the, of, of what we've created. Um, and that leads me very briefly onto um, a project uh, here, in, here in Australia, and it's called the Heal of Scar Project. And this is really, um, I'm giving you this example because it's really important to, to recognize that we all need to work together to collaborate, a multidisciplinary approach to really understand how we can restore habitat um, for ourselves and um, also for biodiversity. So this is a partnership with Deakin University established in 2017. It's a theoretical project. In other words, we were wanting to inquire how could we regenerate that area, what would be the tools that we would use, and I'll talk you through that in a moment. But basically, this is a decommissioned um, Alcoa site in, in Anglesey, which supplied coal-powered energy from 1969 to 2015. Um, and so the research really explored a regenerative ecological systems-based approach around the rehabilitation of, the, of, the, of these mines and how that learning could then be applied worldwide. Um, and as I say, I've included it because I think the pursuit of knowledge is really important. It recognises the need for research and we need applied research with us all working together to solve the right questions. So this approach was to design three scenarios which would demonstrate visually and spatially the way human intervention would enable restorative design on three levels. The first one is uh, restorative design, which really goes beyond um, rehabilitation or current best practice to deliver sustainable or, or net zero responses to restoring our ecological systems. So that's supportive infrastructure and, and, and built interventions. So regenerative design is inherently adaptive and, and evolutionary. And, and some of the uh, areas we explored was how to restore waterways. And what would be their pathway for that? And there's a, there's a number of um, themes that it explored. The second area that it looked at was, was um, actually the, the, uh, the process of restore and renew and revitalize. So how can we restore? How can we look at the sources of energy and materials? How can we create sustainable systems that integrate the needs of society with, with, the, with the integrity of nature? So looking at connecting people's stewardship with the land, because we need that management still. So how do you develop a deep and respectful connection to place as an in intrinsic part of that regenerative de design process? Um, so that's, you know, what are the stories, what's the history, and how can we tell that um, and improve, improve the outcomes? And so, so we go through, you know, the restore, regenerative, and, and then we're, it's, it's making sure, oops, it's making sure that we're, um, uh, we're, we're adaptive. So that's seeking to look at the future state. So when we look at building resilience in, resilience is the ability of, a, of any system to be able to cope with future shocks and stresses. So how do we manage that? We know, for example, with climate change, there are more shocks and stresses to come. And how do we, as built environment professionals, protect ourselves from that? And how do we scale up and re recognize that we need influences from outside also to contribute to that? So this is just one area of inquiry, and the outputs of this work are being finalized and will be published in the journal. And I think it's really important that we learn from this, at least within Grimshaw, and we share that with others and then we can start to be thinking how we can deploy these techniques and ideas to further improve that. And then my final um, slide, and this is the fun bit really for me, because when I think of, when I first came to Melbourne, I was a little bit disappointed when I was looking at all the new build that was going up, and I was just wondering, how good is it? How, what's the quality like? You know, 
is the environment being taken care of? And you kind of ask yourself the question, what if? What if there were no barriers? What could we do that would really be different? So, you know, Grimshaw's been working on this. So what is the future of urban living, particularly high-rise living in Melbourne? So Grimshaw are asked to explore how will we design the world's first most livable and sustainable high-rise. And you may not like the response, but this was our response. So it was, it was to make sure that it was net positive. So it had the living building challenge you know, certification. Um, that it had timber, it was modular, it had passive house, we've talked about already, construction. It had integrated vertical farming, not just tokenism for lettuce, but actually something of substance, real nutrition that could help with people's um, diets. And it was livable, that we had a sense of community even up in the air. So it's a series of vertical laneways allowing the buildings to breathe and socialise with a network of stairways connecting to green spaces, no more than two storeys uh, away from anywhere in the building. So this is some renders, a schematic of what potentially a future building could look like. That could give us everything that we've, I've just described. It has to be livable, has to be sustainable. Can it give something back? Can it be regenerative? Can we have this or other types of buildings in our city? So this is, uh, this is a, a response, if you like, an inquiry, but I hope it will stimulate further ideas. Um, and now in, what I'd like to do is, is just consider the future and our, and our world. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's really important to, to recognise that I, I believe we are at a crossroads. You know, we, have, we are running out of time to provide these solutions and there is a sense of urgency. So whatever we do together, let's be smart about it. It's really important. Um, but we do need to have agency and I think, you know, the, the, the summit... Uh, in, in, you know, just recently, it's, it's really clear we need political leadership, we need agency, and us as professionals who, who hopefully, if you're working in the built environment, we need to demonstrate and give clear confidence to, to our politicians and to the clients that we can deliver affordable you know, solutions that deliver the right kind of out outcomes that our citizens expect. So that's it's really uh, important in my mind. Um, and so, you know, the UN has said that carbon-neutral buildings and products must become standard globally by 2030. So for us, our, our, our response really is very clear. Our commitment has been that we will have net-zero carbon operations by the end of 2020, that we will carry on that pursuit that we've already been mobilised on so that we can offer carbon or net-zero carbon-ready designs by 2025. And the rationale behind that is that actually if they get commissioned and go through a construction phase and, and um, into operation, then that gives us a chance of hitting the 2030 deadline. But as I would then say, and we're moving you know, quickly on this and we'd love to collaborate with you, we need to move into regenerative design. We need to be thinking about our built environment as not as taking, but as giving back. And, and so we are fully committed to being working on exploring how we can offer sustainable and regenerative design by 2030. So that's what we're about. Uh, and if you're you know, working for um, a firm here in Melbourne, I'd say that you know, at least the first one of these you should be looking at. We should all be driving to a net zero carbon outcome and being carbon neutral and sending that signal to the market that we want to buy the right kind of energy provision and that has to be renewable. So with that, um, thank you very much for your attention. Um, I'm very happy to take questions. I think there's a roving mic if there's any really particular difficult questions on projects that I haven't worked on, there's some architects around that have, so I'm looking forward to deflecting the question. Thank you all very much.
Paul, thanks for a wonderful talk. Really wonderful and very inspiring. Um, one of the questions I want to have, because you um, have a sort of a global perspective from um, Grimshaw, I think it's always nice to understand what's happening in other places and perhaps learn from that. I think there's many great things that are happening in, in Australia, um, but I think our biggest challenge, and I'd be interested in the, uh, the thoughts of other people out here, our biggest challenge in terms of making big leaps, two big changes are the fight against fashion, and what I mean by that is if we look at, say, the commercial building world or we look at, say, even the residential world, the addiction to glazing, floor-to-ceiling glazing, unshaded glazing, uh, non-thermally broken windows. And the second trend that we have to have is basically poor construction. You know, uh, ultimately, if you look at some of the buildings that we build in this country and you compare them to what would be delivered in Europe or in other places, um, I think we have a real challenge around things like air tightness, um, insulation, fundamental things that are the basic building blocks that deliver the zero carbon bit. Because you can, if you're designing a tall building, your ability to, you know, use PVs and things like that mm -hmm. is somewhat limited. But you can make a big impact if you can just control the amount of solar gain that comes into space. Still have daylight, but still have that. So my question is, can you tell us a little bit about what is happening in, in America, in, in um, uh, uh, the UK? Mm -hmm. I'm reading a lot that there is a pushback and a change in the industry around um, floor-to-ceiling glazed buildings and actually a move towards the first buildings that you've shown. There's that beautiful building in, um, in Arizona which con beautifully controlled the amount of solar game and yet had great views and, and daylighting and so on. Could you talk a little bit sure. about the, the fight against fashion? Certainly, and, and I think um, it comes with almost like exposing uh, the issue and where the, where the evidence and the data is. So when you really start to understand the, the transition that you need to take to deliver a net zero carbon outcome and actually then go into net negative emissions, because that's what we need to do. We need to, we need to be sucking the, the carbon out of our atmosphere. And, and you then look at that transition, we should and we need to get to a stage where you just say, you just can't do it. We have to stop doing things that we know are bad for us. Uh, and it's as simple as that. So it then is making sure that the politicians have the right information and the confidence to hold to their convictions. And it is painful, it is complicated. One of the things that we did in the UK is we instigated the Climate Change Act. We made it legally binding for the government to commit to targets around greenhouse gas emissions. And secondly, what we did, which was really encouraging and is, and is very beneficial, which was we set up an independent committee for climate change. And they routinely look at the data and the evidence. We look at our progress. We look at our progress against that energy transition pathway. And then they, they call some very strong shots and actually say, well, just recently, you know, do we want to have gas being supplied to all new buildings? No, we don't, because we know we're weaning off gas. We need to go to electric, so we need to stop. That sends a very strong message to house builders 
that they start to, new, to, to design for you know, electric-only housing. So it's those types of things. And if you look at what happens in Scandinavia, and I've been involved in the development of their fossil-free roadmap, it's one of consultation. It's one of recognizing that there are winners and losers in this and that some businesses and, or sectors will find it difficult and they might need some help. But once you really ultimately realize and understand where we need to go, the answers are pretty clear. And we just need to have a little bit more bite and conviction to say, no, you know, we can't all afford to have the most amazing views which don't make any sense because they create the pollution as a result of that. You know, we've got a big problem. We've gone, in London, for example, we've gone from this lovely uh, craze, the fashion, of high-rise glazed living. Yeah? And guess what? It's overheating. You go in there, people don't want to live anymore. They've got shades down all the time. They can't see anyhow. So what's the point of, of, of having all that glazing if they can't look out? So there are, there are issues. Um, and there are issues that actually... Uh, are, are detrimental to our health and well-being. And I think that's another you know, movement and, and phenomenon that's really important. How do we design buildings and places that are going to be good for us? So you know, we need to solve the environmental issue, but we need to solve the social issue. So, I think, so, that, so that's an issue. And then uh, I think there's a, a growing recognition, particularly in, in, in America, around this embodied carbon issue. So California's put out a Clean Construction Act the senators there sponsored it, and it's looking at ways in which we can reduce the embodied carbon in these construction materials. So it wants construction to be cleaner. It wants to use innovative new materials. Uh, so how can we phase that? And one of the things that's happening in America is there's this uh, resur resurgence in designing using CLT or cross-laminated timber. So there's a lot of activity on the east and west coast in using timber construction. Um, that may... Uh, and, and, and so, so in, in terms of you know, the quality there and, and, and the innovations, that's something I'm seeing from America. Uh, I think the, uh, you always get the problems, particularly um, at the highest level, uh, you know, in terms of a prime minister or, or a president, not necessarily being as conv convicted as we would like, but actually at the state level, there's a lot of activity going on in, uh, in America, and they've got very progressive uh, construction and built environment controls. Um, and we see that also in Europe. Uh, you know, the EU's now said we want nearly net zero carbon buildings. So it's the transition. So it's just nudging us all to recognise that it has to come quickly. So I think that's, uh, you know, that's some of the things that, that I see happening. And of course, you know, going back to that whole point about adaptive reuse and repurposing. You know, if you build something really well first time, you're going to get so much more use out of it. It's just common sense, isn't it? And then if we build for deconstruction, uh, and that's, a, that's another big movement in Europe in particular, modular construction, so, so that we can repurpose. Uh, going back to that example I gave you about Herman Miller. Just another question. As a sort of lapsed structural engineer who's been working on the 23rd floor of... Collins Square for the last couple of years in an, uh, an IT role. Do we have a national construction code in Australia? Right. Do we? Um, can we do glass fibre fibre reinforced concrete in Australia? Is it, have we got mass production of fibre reinforced concrete for load bearing walls and so on? Right, are we using them? Second question: Fly ash into cement. Are we doing that broadly around Australia? Okay, so the glass fibre and the fly ash construction code national, we're on our way. Well done.
No, there's an issue there, though. So as the world transitions its power away from uh, coal power stations, which is where you get your flash from, so you've probably got a lot. You've got a lot, and you're probably going to be able to export it. So in some parts of the world, fly ash, and there's something called slag, which comes from steel making. Those, those materials quite often are more expensive now to buy than Portland cement. So in places like in the UK where I'm from, um, we don't have that much availability. Um, and so there's a real challenge. So we need innovation. So this is the, you know, could we live with a world without cement? If not, how can we live in a world with just low carbon or low embodied cement? And we need to see that innovation coming through from the cement suppliers. In, in, in fairness, they've got a, an energy transition pathway to a net zero carbon scenario by 2050. But a lot of all their activity happens in about 2040 to 2050 because they're, they're, they're betting on carbon capture storage as something that is a commercial viable um, technology. I've got my doubts on that um, because that would mean really moving the cement, cement kilns to places where we've got other areas of, of industry or places where you can actually store the CO2 underground. So touching on the topic of affordability and the kind of materials that we are going to need for sustainable development, in areas where we know that they cannot afford to buy these materials, particularly in developing countries, which is more than 50% of the world's population in high-rise buildings and low coverage of trees, how are we going to incorporate new standards of urban development in highly populated, particularly densely gentrified um, areas that cannot afford for very good quality materials. So as we were mentioning, for instance, Ecuador, Quito, I am actually Ecuadorian, and one of the, the challenges that we have is that our construction has to be not only sustainable, for earthquakes and for environmental damages, but it also has to be the cheapest available because we don't have much resources to actually come and meet the standards for you know, COP21 or 2030 zero emissions for buildings. So I want to know what would you recommend to developing nations who probably request international aid or other sort of solutions that are more um, direct to actually achieve a realistic perspective to 2030. So, so I think here's a real opportunity for innovation. There's an opportunity to work with universities, say for example in, in Quito and others, to form networks with other universities and bring in material suppliers and people who are manufacturing. So we've got to redesign almost all our systems to cope with a new world in a way that um, manages our consumption and provides us with some degree of prosperity and quality of life. So the only way you can really look at it is think about it as an opportunity and then think about what would be the ingredients to stimulate a green economy that would create jobs, that would then provide the materials that would then lead to the communities getting that benefit. So it's difficult for me to comment on, on Ecuador. I, I left Ecuador a few years ago, but that, that's, that's what we need to do. We need to everybody needs to see the opportunity. And once they can see the opportunity, there is money. There's no shortage of money that can flow. But it, nowadays, the money has to flow to do a number of things. And one, two, two of them, at least, are demonstrating how it meets those UN Sustainable Development Goals, you know, the 17, the badge I'm wearing. And it has to be compliant with the Paris 
Accord or the Climate Agreement. And so how can we, how could you, and going back to Ecuador, how could we stimulate a debate that actually creates an opportunity? And this is the kind of opportunity that we need desperately in Australia as well. We need to be thinking about not a threat, but an opportunity. How can we create a change? The, 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 you know, the, if you go into America and some of the changes they've made in their heavy in, um, industrialized or energy-intensive materials, they've gone into clean tech. Yeah, they've seen that opportunity. They've created you know, millions of jobs. So there are opportunities. In Europe, we've done the same. So it's, it's one of recognizing what is the challenge, how can we create the public interface or the policy, how can we involve the researchers, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, how can we get some structural funding to come in to help that. And many countries need help, and it's not just third world countries. You, know, you look at Poland, for example, and they had a cop there, and Poland's got, you know, all its industry is out of date, heavy, energy use, all, you know, from the coal industry. And it desperately needs to change. And we need to recognise that we need to help them. So there needs to be that transition. So I would, I would go back and, and start to ask those questions about, what, you know, how do you solve that problem? Solve it collaboratively and, and you'll pull the money in. There's a question over there. Anybody else with a question? You can hold your candle up or mobile phone and we can see you if there's a question over there. Oh, hello. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I had a question regarding the, the installations at the Dubai Expo, the ones uh, with the water tree and the solar trees. Yes. Uh, I had a question because architects influence about 15 to 16% of the overall buildings. So when you're going on to influence a society when you're saying that it's, it's late so we need to act fast upon, is it important to invest in expos and show them as, as what the potential can be to spread the word, or spread the knowledge, or is it important to more invest in solar farms where it's, it's isolated from the society, but it, it has a bigger effect over the energy that's produced or energy that's conserved? So what should be the approach? Of where do you draw the line between the two? Where that's a really good question, actually, and I'm, I'm not sure I really know the answer. I'm, I'm intuitively thinking it needs both. And one of the reasons why I say that, and I'm not suggesting the e-tree is going to be a viable solution, because we don't know. But if it were, when you just think about the, 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 the problems we've got with the move towards electric vehicles. So we need to create infrastructure that can power cars. And what I didn't say with, with the facility of the pavilion, there's no batteries. So any energy that is surplus requirement goes back to the grid. But we could get to a situation where, you know, using battery technologies, cars as, you know, have batteries, the e-trees, that we, we could be creating a place that, you know, shades, creates uh, or generates energy, and that can be, can be utilised, whether it's the, the most viable thing to go back into the grid or whether it could be directly for use. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. But there's clearly, when you think of economies of scale and the solar parks that we now see... Um, and indeed, when we go to renew wind, offshore and onshore, there are different approaches, and scalability is really important. Um, at the moment, it's kind of like a prototype. Now, I'm sure the costs of construction um, and, and maintenance, operation and maintenance of these trees are, are expensive. But it's, you know, the intent behind it was to explore how could we make a community or a building like that in the middle of the desert be net zero energy and water.
but it's a good question. Thanks, mate. Um, you started off uh, as an ecologist, obviously working in the sort of not built environment. And I'm interested to hear about what your thoughts are. I mean, you see the effects of sort of monoculture on the ecology of the world and sort of the detrimental unsustainable practices that we've sort of have followed on from that culture for the last sort of 100, 200 years in particular. In the built environment, do you see like a future of moving away from the sort of monoculture of just like we've got a city here, we've got everyone's got their quarter acre here, we're living in these sort of independent houses where, you know, it's not really mixed use, there's not a lot of difference going on, there's not a lot of diversity in those spaces. As an ecologist that now works in the built environment, what do you see as like the future for improving sustainability and maybe sort of interoperability in that space? So I believe in diversity. So whether it's species diversity that gives you biodiversity or whether it's diversity of typology and opportunity for people with different requirements to enjoy living in an urban environment. And we've got some real challenges to come when some parts of the world with an aging urban population, we've got issues around loneliness, uh, we've got issues even on the streets here in terms of, of um, food poverty or shelter, etc. So we've got to create an environment that celebrates diversity of people and their needs, and we've got to match that with a diversity of approach around our built form. Um, and in doing so, we've also got to understand that we can no longer, going back to the earlier questions, do whatever we like. We've got some constraints that we need to manage, and we need to recognise that and minimise our footprint uh, in terms of our consumption. So we need a built environment to be redesigned to help us enjoy our lives, connect with people, go, you know, whether it's transport, healthcare, schools, and such like, but create that condition where we are able to have some degree of prosperity. How do you do that? I mean, I, I, you know, I would hate to think, and I don't think it will happen, that we're all going to live in a, in a built environment that looks exactly the same. There is, and we can't do that, for, for one reason is we'd have to demolish everything now and start again, and that's not going to happen. We've got to get into reuse and repurposing or whatever. So there will be tired and distressed uh, types of buildings that have been built here that have passed their usefulness for whatever, whether it's thermal comfort, etc. And we need to have a, a systematic approach in, in terms of what we can do and where we can get a scale of economy where we can either retrofit or, or think of another use for them. So I'm, in answer to your question, you know, I'm, I'm all for diversity because diversity builds us the robustness that we need to create resilience. And once we're resilient as a community and we show that we care for each of us, each one of us, we can then build the, the kind of response that we might need. And indeed, one of which I've witnessed in the last few months, either when I was last here or from afar, in terms of how you, your communities have rallied around. And actually, it's a really good point, you know, just thinking about it. And, and it's a social interaction. And this is where, you know, going back to some of my thoughts around prosperity, you know, when we, when, we, when we go to work or we meet people, we always say, how are you? You know, we, we do care. And, and, if, and I had family over here and I live in, back in the UK and I was worried and I, you know, to think about what was happening to them. So my well-being was connected to their well-being. And whether it's a distance of ever a thousand miles or whether it's your next door neighbour or it's your work colleague, we do care and we, we are wired socially like that. So we do need to be thinking about 
that prosperity piece and, and designing and creating space that allows us to have those connections. Otherwise, we're missing the point. I mean, when you think about the pursuit of, of growth, which is always on everyone's mind, but for what? So we can break the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, we can create all the chaos that we've got. And by the way, apparently none of us are any happier. So we've got to really just reconsider why we're doing this. And I think it starts with, it can start with really good planning, great architecture, a sense of purpose that includes everyone. So diversity. Oh, you're not going to let me go, are you? You know there is a bar. You can all have a drink. <laughs> Coming back to the question of the Dubai Expo, and um, you said that uh, we should look for innovation in, in, in the middle of the desert, for example. And my question would be, should we change the dialogue about do we look for innovation in the middle of a desert or should we uh, re-question where we build and should we build in more favorable climates? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? So, you know, when you think what Dubai was 40 years ago and what it is now, it, it's indescribable. Um, and it's quite, it's quite clear that um, man and his ingenuity um, has created the opportunity to live in the most hostile environments. I mean, there are other species that are more successful than us, but there's not many. I mean, ants are one of them. But uh, we, we are able to live almost everywhere now. And actually, we're probably not adapted to it and we've taken advantage the challenge then is you know we can't turn back the clock so how do we then manage what we've already got and so i guess if the expo was going to be i don't know in canberra grimshaw would have probably entered a competition and wanted to do something in canberra and 2020 could have been canberra and a sustainability pavilion based on some of the issues and themes that we see here What's interesting, though, particularly about the pavilion, is you know, water scarcity and stress. How can that design that we've tried to do in, uh, with the pavilion, how could that be utilised and learnt from by other architects or designers? Could it be applied somewhere else? So when you think about water stress, it's not just in, uh, you know, in Dubai. It's, it's in, well, 40% of the world's population has an issue with water stress. So I, th I think one could be critical... Uh, around you know where man now lives but it's incredibly difficult to turn back the clock so what we now need to do is redesign the system reduce the impacts that we have try and restore and regenerate as best we can and then manage ourselves so that we enjoy our lives so what's the point the prosperity but we've got to do it within the, those planetary boundaries so uh you know i, I don't see how we're gonna the only way it will stop is if there is you know sadly some a national, uh, or not national, but a, you know, a, a disaster, or something that happens that creates a no-go area, and then we will leave. And at this point, yes, it's time to applaud. Okay, thank you. <laughs>